So we are in the seri- season of Lent, and we have a series that is uh, developed for the season of Lent, which will be an exploration of the doctrine of God, of Christ, of sin and grace, and I think of the cross. I think that's where we finish. Today, we're going to focus specifically on the doctrine of God, and every hymn, every song that I have chosen, and each of the readings that we will hear uses different images and symbols and metaphors for God. What I hope is that we will enjoy the richness of the diversity, and perhaps there will be a little bit of a challenge with some less familiar or less comfortable images of God. But you see, God is just amazing and mind-blowing, and there's always more to learn about who God is, so we never should think that we have arrived. So as our call to worship, I'm going to use three short readings. First from Psalm 91. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. In the second book of Samuel. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my saviour. You save me from violence. And then lastly, a proverb. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. One of the ways that Christians have understood God is as goodness, truth and beauty. And so in our opening prayers this morning... We will use our own imperfect understandings and experience of these as a framework for our prayer. Let's pray together. God, who is beauty, beyond being beautiful, far more than merely the source of beauty, our minds are blown by such a concept. And we struggle to find the words to form a prayer. What we can do is to call to mind our own experiences of beauty, glimpsed in the natural world and in the artistry of human creativity, and to thank you for that. The symmetrical patterns of a butterfly's wing, the spiral of a snail shell, the intricate pattern of frost on a window pane, the exotic plumage of peacocks, the crystalline structure of rock, the magnificence of art and sculpture, the soaring crescendos of music, the eloquence of poetry and prose, 
the natural beauty of every human form. And in a moment of silence, we thank you for something in which we find beauty. God, who is truth, beyond being truthful, more than just the source of truth, we whose own truths are partial and provisional, struggle to find the words to form a prayer. But what we can do is to call to mind our own experience of truth, glimpsed in the communities of which we are part, and the education with which we are privileged, and to say thank you for it. For the work of scientists unlocking secrets of the universe, the careful recording of history, the painstaking investigations of detectives and forensic scientists, the work of groups giving voice to those on the margins, the human knowledge and understanding, justice, integrity and peace. In a moment of silence, we thank you for something in which we discover truth. God, who is good, beyond being good, more than merely the source of goodness. As we have pondered beauty and truth, so we have become uncomfortably aware of the limits of our own goodness. And we bring you our private confessions. For the times that we have considered ourselves better than others. For the times that we have judged or condemned others. For the times when our motivation has been greed or selfishness. For the times when, despite our best efforts, we failed to meet our own standards, never mind yours. In a moment of silence, we bring to you the regrets of our hearts, seeking your forgiveness and mercy. Beautiful God, in whom goodness and truth are expressed in immeasurable love, mercy and grace, accept our prayers and help us to walk more closely in your ways. For we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Our readings this morning are from the Psalms. In Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes, to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I looked at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them? Yet you've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honour. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Sovereign, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. In Psalm 93. The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is girded with strength. He has established the world. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. More majestic than the thunders of mighty waters. More majestic than the waves of the sea. Majestic on high is the Lord. Your decrees are very sure. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And then in Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time on and forevermore. Amen. So, as I said at the start of the service, during the season of Lent, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at some aspects of Christian doctrine. Now, that might sound incredibly highbrow and academic, but if I'm doing it, it can't be, because I'm not very good on philosophy of religion. I used to smile at my philosophy of religion teacher, because I didn't understand a word he was saying. Seemingly, smiling at him worked, because I passed the course. What we can do in a short time is catch a glimpse of what it's um, about. Some of these important doctrines are about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, Jesus, the doctrine of grace, and the doctrine of the cross. Now, it will be very much a glimpse, a scraping of the surface. I actually looked back um, through my college list of subjects that I did. I took three courses totally focused on doctrine. One was a 10-week course lasting 30 hours of lectures just on the doctrine of God. So you can see that in a 20-minute sermon, we're not going to get incredibly deep into any of those. What we can do is begin to find some things that you might like to go away and think about a bit more. And that's why when you came in on your chairs, you found a list of four kind of overview books on Christian theology that you might be interested in having a look at. I happen to have all four of those on my bookshelves somewhere, and I have been making reference to them in preparing these sermons. They're all written by trustworthy writers. They all have good evangelical credentials. They are all properly trained. They're all quite thoughtful but they approach it in different ways. Unfortunately, none of those books is in Glasgow City Libraries, because I checked in the catalogue, but you can definitely get them in Wesley Owen, because I checked their online catalogue. If you sort of look at that and think, well, that's all very, very basic, I don't need that, then that's fine. That just means that you are equipped to go away 
and find the really hard books on the doctrine of God or whatever it is and read it for yourself. So this week then, we start thinking about the doctrine of God. Now just saying that might seem a very strange thing to say. How can God be a doctrine, a set of ideas or beliefs? Surely God just is. The trouble is that by saying God just is, we are making a doctrinal statement a statement of belief because that's what doctrine really is a set of beliefs one of the challenges we have when we start thinking about Christian doctrine is it's not written out neatly for us in the Bible unlike the Apostles Creed or the Westminster Confession or the 39 Articles or the Evangelical Alliance Declaration of Faith or any other creedal statement, each of which is carefully worked out, the Bible is a set of stories about real people trying to live in relationship to God as they understood God at that time. And sometimes they got it right, and sometimes they got it horribly wrong. We find lots of hints and glimpses and images of God But you won't find anywhere in the Bible a nicely written down doctrine of God. Shouldn't surprise us really. The Bible isn't an academic textbook. It is a sacred text, a book of stories that are religious and they reveal something of the mystery of God. And for those of us who have any kind of sense of Baptist or Baptistic heritage we kind of come at this a little bit warily because Baptists and Baptistic churches historically have always eschewed tight creedal statements. Why? Because by writing down what you believe, you close down the potential for God to show you something else. We shouldn't ever think that we can tie down neatly what God is like for all time. Rather, we be more honest and say, as the old hymn writer says, we limit not the truth of God to our poor reach of mind by notions of our day and sect, crude, partial and confined. No, let a new and better hope within our hearts be stirred. The Lord has yet more light and truth to break forth from God's word. But there is a danger that sometimes we never take the time to think about how we understand God and how that shapes the way we live, how that shapes our prayer in private and our public worship, and in fact how our understanding of God is shaped by our prayer and our worship. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look very quickly at three of the most widely used arguments to the existence of God, and then very briefly look at how we use language in our our exploration of thinking about God. It's not a traditional sermon. It's a bit of Christian philosophy and a bit of scripture. And we are invited to listen very carefully 
for new insights into the God in whom we believe might want to bring us. Now that's kind of complicated, isn't it? We believe in God. We think God might want to bring us new insights into the God in whom we believe. My mind can't quite get round that. So if your mind can get round that, you can come and explain it to me. We're going to begin with the argument that many theologians tell me is the simplest one of all. And I have to confess, I've never understood it properly. I got very confused when I had to study at college. And maybe that's something about the way my brain works. Maybe that's something about the way it was taught. But it seemed like a very slippery concept to get hold of. And every time I thought, yep, I've got it now, it would slip away from me again. I've been reading afresh from some of these books I mentioned this week, and I think I'm just beginning to get a hint of what this particular argument is about. This argument is called the ontological argument. The ontological argument. There are various different theologians and scholars who have offered their understandings of it, but it goes something like this. We begin with ourselves as beings capable of rational and logical thought and also of creative thought. We are able to imagine a being greater than ourselves. But we recognise that our power to imagine such a being are limited. And so it is possible for there to exist a being beyond our imagining. And such a being is God. Do you know, I'm really kind of encouraged that there's some very puzzled faces. I thought it was just me that struggled with this one. This argument is actually the closest to the statement with which we began. God is. Because that's kind of where it starts. There is a God. But it uses logic in the kind of philosophical sense of the word to try to construct an argument to support that assertion. It kind of reminds us of when God spoke to Moses and said, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. God is a being beyond our understanding. I actually like the idea of a clear person. I think that's perhaps on the right track for that. This God who is beyond our understanding we find sort of hints and glimpses of this understanding in the language of the psalmist. We talk, have words like glory and majesty. This God who is bigger, greater, more wonderful than we can imagine. But ultimately, this argument says God is. The second approach is called the cosmological argument. They like big words, these people. This is based on the idea of cause and effect. And actually, in this argument, we sort of work backwards from what we see or experience in daily life to try and find its root cause. We see something. Say, the flowers growing in the tubs outside the church. And we ask, well, what caused that then? And we recognise that somebody planted them and that they need soil and they need water and they need light 
And then we step back again and say, why water? Where does water come from? What about light? What causes light? And we keep going backwards and backwards to try to find the root cause. In a kind of infinite progression, for those who are mathematically inclined, going back to a single prime mover, a first cause beyond time and space, that must be God. As I was rereading this particular argument this week, it seemed to me to have a resonance with what a lot of parents go through when their children are in the why phase. Why do that? Because this. Well, why that? Because that. Well, why that? Because the other. And of course, there's a temptation at the end when you get frustrated to say, because I say so. Or, God made it. And ultimately, that's what this argument leads us to, that God is the first cause of everything. It's a very attractive approach, but we have to be very careful of what is sometimes called the God of the gaps trap, which says, if we can't think how to explain something, we just go, well, it must have been God then. That may be true, but it actually may be that we just don't understand what it was that caused that thing to happen. And one day, we might. So we have the God as the ultimate being. We have God as the first cause or prime mover. The third argument is called the teleological argument, or sometimes, particularly in one form of it, the argument from design. And it's perhaps not so different from the cosmological argument in that we start by observing the natural world. But rather than trying to find a root cause, we try to find hints of a purpose or design. Or at least we don't try to find them, we spot hints that suggest a purpose or design. So if we go back to that tub of flowers outside and we look at one plant, we discover they're all the same shape and they're all the same colour. We discover that there are different kinds of plants, but they all have stems and they all have leaves. In fact, if we look at another tub of flowers, we can find the same thing applies. And if we looked at a tub of flowers outside somebody's house, the same would be there. We find order and pattern in nature. So apple trees, year on year, produce apples. There won't come a year when you get a cabbage on an apple tree or a football. It will always be an apple. And there is something about this rhythm and order that can suggest that there is a purpose or design in the plant kingdom, in the animal kingdom, in the way the world works, in the way the earth works, in the planets and the stars. It's interesting that an awful lot of our scientific research, if you look back historically, emerged from this sense that God was behind all this order and predictability that we observe. And those who are physicists, uh, or any of the physicists are here today, but you look at the basic laws that govern the whole of the universe and you find repeats and repeats, very similar patterns over and over again 
which for some people suggest there is an intelligent designer behind the universe, which we name as God. So three ways in which theologians and philosophers try to explain and understand the existence of God, who God is, what God is. If we read the Psalms and other wisdom literature, we find lots and lots of references to the natural world, supporting those ideas of God as the first cause, God as the designer of all things. Psalm 8, which we heard read for us, Psalm 139, and large parts of the book of Job are probably the best known and loved examples of these ways of thinking about God. One important assumption of all of these understandings about God is that God is, in some sense, personal. The whole of Scripture is predicated on the idea of what theologians call an I-thou relationship between humans and God, between us and God as people, between the creator, God, and the creatures, us. And that leads us, on the whole, to a very anthropomorphic image of God, the image of God as a person, usually a male person. Sometimes people say uh, that God wears a long white dress, that God has a long white beard, that God sits on a cloud. I hope I didn't just put that idea into your head where it wasn't there before, because it kind of got put into mind when I went to college, because I'd never thought of God in those terms, but somebody told me it. That was their view of God. Relating to God as a person is central to what we understand. And relating to God as a perfect father is good. But it isn't the only way of relating to God that we see in scripture. And if the only image we use of God is as a father, as a man... We miss out many, many other powerful insights into the nature of God. If we look through scripture, you'll find all sorts of interesting ways of imagining God. I wonder how carefully you were listening to the readings with which we began this morning's service, which are printed on a sheet for you to take away and ponder a bit further. God is described as having wings wings like an eagle in one of the psalms so do you picture god as a bird or with wings god is pictured as a rock as a shield as a fortress as a tower so do we think of god being built of stone of looking like edinburgh castle Windsor Castle of being like a tower probably not the Leaning Tower of Pisa but you know a tower do we imagine ourselves going inside God as we would go inside a building do we imagine God to be like the shields that the police used to use to protect themselves against rioters 
Anybody who was in Glasgow yesterday afternoon would have seen plenty of police with um, some riot equipment, so thankfully they didn't get to use it. Generally speaking, we don't. We don't think of God as being like a building or like a rock or like an eagle. Yet those are there in Scripture. But we can very easily, if we're not careful, slip into this idea of God as an old man, usually white, usually with a long beard, and sometimes sitting on a cloud. Those images owe more to Victorian picture books than they do to the scriptures. So we have a challenge then. We have a faith that assumes a personal God, a God to whom we relate in an I-thou sense. But that same God is described using metaphors and symbols. If God's protection is like that of a mother eagle protecting her young chicks, and yet God is not a mother eagle, if God's strength is like that of a rock, and yet God is not a lump of granite, then we have to entertain the possibility that God being like a father doesn't require God to be male, nor yet to have a human-style body. The whole thing about metaphors is they carry a sense of not-like as well as a sense of like. So, for example, to say God is a rock suggests that God is strong and dependable. But it doesn't mean that God is eroded by wind or waves or can be hewn to make a different shape. To say God is like a tower in which we can find shelter and safety is great. But you can demolish towers. You can't demolish God. So when we try to describe what God is like... We never get there. How can we describe this first cause, this prime mover, this essence of truth and goodness and beauty, this supreme being? The answer is we can't. There are two ways I want to offer you that Christians typically use when we try to talk of God and to God to help us with this problem. The first one relates to the title of today's service, and that's the use of words that are very often prefixed by omni. Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. Omni just means all. We talk about God as all-powerful, as all-knowing, as all-present. Now, to work with any of those, we'd need another set of sermons and we haven't got time this morning. But it's worth going and thinking about when we use that kind of language in our hymns and songs. God is all-powerful. God knows everything. God is everywhere. What does that mean? What does it mean when people say, well, they're far away from God, but if God is everywhere, how can they be? What does it mean when we say, well, God doesn't know about this, or I'm hiding this from God, when we say God is all-knowing? 
And what does an all-knowing God mean in relation to time and space and all those kind of complicated things? Can't do that today, but they're things you might want to think about. So there's the omni-language, the idea of all about God. But there is also another very intriguing way to say what God is not. And this is where we will end our service today in the hymn that perhaps expresses it the best of all. That God is not mortal, not visible, doesn't rest, doesn't rush, and so on. This is called by uh, my philosophy of religion tutor anyway, the via negativa, the way of negatives. We can never say what God is, so let's say what God isn't. Whatever language we use of God, whether it's the omni-language or the im-in negative language, it will still never quite take us there to where God is. The reality is that sooner or later, the philosophy and the clever words fail us. And we have to say, well, God, I don't really understand, but I believe In finishing up today, I want to set all of us a little challenge. Not to do now, but for the week ahead. I want you to think what your most favourite image of God is and spend a little bit of time thinking how that fails to describe God adequately. So, if we go with the image of God as Father, which renders God male... What does that mean? Because scripture shows us that God isn't male or female, but somehow God is more than either maleness or femaleness. Or if we picture God as a shepherd, how do we see a shepherd working? And what do we miss out as a result of that? And then, this is the even harder bit, having asked you to kind of dismantle one of your favourites a bit, Take an image of God that you find uncomfortable and think, well, what could I learn about God if I explored that image? So what might happen if I thought God was an eagle with wings spread out over its young? Or as a mother nurturing a baby? What new insights might we gain into this amazing God in whom we believe and trust. So it's there on the sheet of paper. Take it home. You can make paper aeroplanes out of it if you like. But perhaps God has something more to reveal of God's self as we engage with new and challenging images of God which are rooted in Scripture. come with our prayers for others. Let's pray together. Immortal and everlasting God, we do not always know what to ask for in our prayers, for there is so much that we do not know or understand. Yet we do know that you are active in our world, moving in human hearts and in the events of history to fulfil your purpose 
So we come to you now and in quiet faith we place ourselves and our world into your hands, confident in the knowledge that you know the end from the beginning. We bring ourselves, weak, faithless, hesitant, foolish. We bring all we are and all we long to be, seeking your help and your transforming touch. We pray for our world, for those many people who face suffering, injustice, hardship and death. We see countries broken by war, people consumed by hatred, thousands living in fear, nations turned against nation, multitudes made homeless by disaster, continents facing famine, and we wonder what the prospects really are. Help us to see beneath the surface recognising that you are at work and that things can change. Help us to see beyond appearances, recognising you are a God able to transform even the most hopeless of situations. Particularly today we pray for the situation in Syria, which to human eyes seems very bleak and also for the recent deterioration in Afghanistan. Invisible God, we thank you that you are a God who hears and answers prayer, and we praise you for those times when you have responded to us and granted our requests. But we confess there are times too when you seem silent, when listen though we might, We cannot hear your voice. So we pray now for all who cry to you, but feel their prayers are unanswered. We think of those facing difficult times, battling with illness, anxious about the future, grieving for loved ones, those for whom life seems a puzzle, even a burden, and who long to find hope, to make some sense out of their confusion. We think of those who feel far from you, who long to know you better, but find it hard to get close, who seek to serve you, but who are weighed down by a sense of their own weakness, their lack of faith, and their mistakes. Reach out, we pray, and bring your word of comfort, of peace, of healing, of love, and of renewal. Silently now we bring to you those who are on our hearts. Only wise God, we thank you for those who are willing to take on the often heavy burden of responsibility and the onerous privilege of leadership. You call us to pray for all those in positions of authority, recognising their need for wisdom in these days. We pray for those in Parliament, both government and opposition. 
in all their decisions, give them a proper sense of responsibility entrusted to them, and grant that they may work not for themselves, but for the good of all. We pray for the Queen and the Royal Family. Help them to use their position wisely, offering inspiration and encouragement to the nation. We pray for managers and directors in industry and commerce, those whose decisions affect not just firms and businesses, but the lives of countless individuals. Give them the wisdom they need in these challenging economic days. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you that you are involved in our lives, active in our world, concerned about everything that you have made. We rejoice that you hold all things ultimately in your hands, and so we leave them confidently with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God who provides, heals, sanctifies and shelters. God who is like a shepherd, who is peace and righteousness, who is always there. God who is beyond our naming or understanding, creating, redeeming and sustaining. Be with us all this day and forevermore. Amen.